0: Hi, it's Laura Dickinson from Denise and Ferb, and you are listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic.
1: Now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to Episode 74 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we begin a new three-part interview with the author of Walt Dreamer's me, Joe Cosgrove. Joe has a long and interesting history, including connections with Disney, the Disney Studios, and many other well-known people, a couple of whom I completely butchered the pronunciation of their names in the introduction, by the way. Something else that made this interview extra fun for me was getting to conduct it in person in the Club 1901 Lounge, Disney California Adventure's private lounge for Club 33 members and their guests. As I mentioned at the end of the last interview, this one is a bit different than what you're used to hearing on the show, but I think you'll find it quite interesting. Now before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that I've brought back the Disney Anna Show offer I made back in July. For a limited time, you can get an autographed copy of my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom, for $17, of Once Upon Your Time, my first book, for $6, or you can get both for $20. For more details or to order, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash christmas14. If you want either or both of these to give as Christmas gifts, be sure to buy them on or before December 20th, so I can get them to you in time. Now, in this episode, Joe talks about the significance of the movies Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and Cinderella in his early life, a positive addiction he developed when he was a kid that still continues today and why it's important, how he got started in radio, Harold Ockengay and Park Street Church, Charles Fuller, Walt Disney, and their similarities, what brings people happiness, more about Charles Fuller and some lessons that Fuller taught and why they're so important. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Have you ever
2: wanted to share something with someone just because?
0: Well, we do a lot.
2: So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, Well, you know what I mean. Hey, it's me, Al. Listen, I'm hijacking the Just Because podcast to start a new series all about the wonderful world of voice acting. Each episode, I'll have a professional voice actor on and ask them some serious, hard-hitting questions to get to the bottom of this in a world. You know, world... If you've ever wanted to know about the inner workings of this magical and mystical business, tune in to Just Because inside the VoiceOver Studio. Tune in at justbecausepodcast.com and on iTunes. And
0: now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic.
1: I've had several guests on Stories of the Magic who've had impressive careers and who have known and worked with amazing people. That may be no more true than with today's guest, Joe Cosgrove. Joe was, among other things, a broadcaster at KPOL AMFM in Los Angeles, California, one of L.A.'s highest-rated radio stations, and while there, he met Josh Medor. They became good friends and worked together at the Walt Disney Studios. During the California primary for the 1964 Republican presidential nomination, Joe and future President Ronald Reagan worked together for Senator Barry Goldwater. He was an executive with three Fortune 500 companies, and he's been profoundly and personally impacted through his relationships and interactions with people such as Walt Disney, Charles Fuller, Bill Cosby, Harold J. Okinga, Bob Hope, Jack Lillane, Dewey Burden, Steve Allen, Bill Harrison, Alan J. Friedman, and Lawrence Harvey. Above all that, though, still stands Joe's love for Disney. Joe grew up in Boston, Massachusetts during the Depression, and he was entertained, illuminated, inspired, and motivated by Walt. That carried through his life, and it led him to write the book Walt Dreamers Me. He's also an original member of Club 33, a extension, I guess you could say, of which, over in Disney California Adventure, is where we are recording this interview. So, Joe, welcome to Stories of the Magic.
3: Thank you. It's... Uh, it's... Pleasure to be with you, Randy. Thanks for the neat introduction.
1: My pleasure. So, how did your fascination with Disney begin?
3: You know, I was born in 1930, and uh, it was my mother and four sisters and me, uh, because my dad was missing. My dad was what I tell people, alcohol researcher. He was home researching a lot, out of the house. But I grew up with my mom and four sisters. And when Snow White came out, I was a kid. And it was one of the first movies I saw along with The Wizard of Oz. Those were the two early movies I saw. And I was really overwhelmed with Snow White when you're young. You know, Snow White hit when I was eight years old and hit the screens. And uh, it's bigger than life. And I have to tell you, Randy, for months after that when I would go to school... I would go, hi ho, hi ho, it's off to school I go, and, you know, and I would do that in the playground and kids would sing with me. And the music from Snow White, you know, hi ho and whistle while you work, I mean, I sang those songs. <clears throat> music is, um, as Mozart said, it's the music is the sound of angels. And I found out later, and we'll get into it more later, that Walt was a pioneer in, in how do you use music in movies. Uh, prior to that, people would just all of a sudden burst out singing in a scene or something. And Walt, when he was doing this, and I learned this from Joshua Meddor, who worked very closely with Walt. We'll, go, we'll talk about him later in detail. But uh, Walt wanted the music to kind of be a natural thing. And sure, when, it, you, when you're when going off to work, you, you know, or when you're working, you wish wasting while to work. And I learned some lessons from watching Snow White, and I'll tell you what they were in a minute. The next movie I saw from Disney was Fantasia, mm-hmm. and Fantasia was overwhelming. I love music, but the, this, in the theater I went to in Boston, they had speakers in the front, speakers in the side, speakers in the back, and I got a playbill, and I'm, I'm a little kid, and I'm just looking at this, and I'm surrounded by this music. It was like an early form of surround sound stereo okay, by Walt Disney. Uh-huh. So later I learned about more from Josh Meadow, who worked on that film, of course, about how they did that. And I was rather over. Snow Fantasia was really overwhelming. I have to be honest. It was overwhelming. I mean, flying hippos and pink elephants <laughs> and all that, you know, all this great music. Right. Then I saw Pinocchio. Now, I live in Boston in a rough, you know, Jamaica playing Roxbury. It's kind of a rough area. People know know about Roxbury it- And uh, lots of gangs, and uh, we lived in my grandma's house. My grandmother had a home right across the street from Franklin Park, which was great. It's a 750-acre park in in Jamaica Plain Roxbury area in Boston. Mm -hmm. And my aunt lived up the road from us a couple of miles in the high-rent district, and I'll tell you about my aunt shortly. But Pinocchio taught me, be careful who you pick as your friends, and don't lie. Right, right. A little bit later on, I'm going to talk to you on this program about honesty. Ben Franklin wrote about honesty, and I'm going to tell you what he said. Above all things, Walt Disney was honest. Mm -hmm. And as I will tell all of your listeners in a moment, one of Ben Franklin's guiding principles in life is where truth and honesty are wanting, everything is wanting, whether it's politics, personal relationships, religion, makes no difference. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I learned that. And then I saw Cinderella. Single mom, four sisters, me and mom. And from Cinderella, it gave me, it doesn't matter what's going on. Stay true to your values. Stay true to your dreams. So I'm growing up in Boston, and I see these films as a kid, and I'm really impacted by the music and the imagery and the storytelling and the visuals. I love radio. I grew up listening to the radio as a kid, because radio was king for many years. You know, before before TV. Right. You know, there was radio was started in the '20s when Walt was starting the studio and radio was huge it was like a, a company in the movie industry but radio was the universal way you could communicate it was the theater of the mind you know mm-hmm. and uh, radios were I mean the country was you know started everybody had a radio eventually you know but I loved radio and I loved I loved radio a lot and uh because I listened to the Lone Ranger, and Jack Armstrong, the All American Boy, and I Love a Mystery, and Charles E. Fuller from Long Beach, on his program, mm-hmm. and then of course I heard Bob Hope, who later we became a lifelong friend of mine, on the radio, and Red Skelton, and Jack Benny, all of whom I, all people I met. Later in life, but I never. You, when you're a kid, you can't. You don't. You don't even think about. I'm going to meet these people. Roddy Reagan was in the movies, and I saw Roddy. You know, uh-huh. but uh, movies. You know, cost a dime then. It cost me ten cents to go see Snow White when I was a kid. Uh, but uh, radio was fascinating. And uh, one Christmas, uh, some ladies from the church where Mom and I and the kids went, the Congregational right. Church, Boylston Congregational Church in Boston, near our house. They gave us Christmas every year, you know, because Mom was the single mom. Mm -hmm. And they gave me this big box that I opened up, and you know what it was? It was a broadcast studio. I opened it up, and it had the walls around it, and had sound effects and a bunch of scripts. Oh, wow. So I read, I saw how scripts were made, how, what the announcers said, what the sound effects, the whole formatting of scripting, mm-hmm. What this clutch of scripts I had, and I would do dramas, and I would do all these kind of shows, and i entertain my mind. My, I'm 10, nine, ten years old doing this, and I did it a lot. And I'm listening to radio. Now, when uh, I was growing up as a child, I had a lot of allergies. So, my, when the, seven, the movie Seven Dwarfs came out, I wasn't grumpy or dopey, I was sneezy. You know? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so, my aunt, my mom's older sister, and when I was growing up in the 30s, hold on to your chair, was the vice president of Sacconi Oil Company in Boston. Oh, wow, okay. A woman. Uh huh. Okay? Yeah. My aunt took me, because I was, I know it sounds going to be hard to believe, but I was a very shy kid
2: <laughs>
3: with the allergies and being sick at school, you know. But one, I have to, I want to parenthetic because one of the things I want to talk to about is uh, health and fitness because it's been very important and it was very important to Walt even though he spoke. But as a kid, I started running to school when I was five years old because of the tough neighborhood I lived in. I could run. I could outrun it, but I could run out the bullies, you know. Right. So every day, going to school, except when I got to high school, I'd have to take the trolley car to go. to I'd, I'd run through the park and then take the car to go. to. But I ran to school every day, and I went to summer camp, thanks to our church. The church had a summer camp in New England, up at Lake Winnipesaukee, and Lake Winnipesaukee. And I would go there. My mom, I'll never forget, when my mom put me on the uh, uh, train, And I'm going away from home for the first time when I'm nine years old and I'm hiding in the little boy's room because I don't want to go and she drags me out and says go. And I'm supposed to be there for a week. And at the end of the week they said you were the camper of the week so you get to stay another week. And that first year I was there the entire summer. They kept me the entire summer. So I learned about, I learned how to swim. I learned how to do entertainment. I learned summer camp songs like "There's a Hole in the Bottom of the Sea" and you know all this kind of crazy uh, summer camp songs, you know. But above all, I learned to swim. And the reason I mention that is uh, because at my age now eighty-four, people say I've never met anyone like you. That's because when I was a kid, I started to run and I started to swim, and I never stopped. I was in the pool this morning. I'm in the pool every day, uh-huh. seven days a week. Um, and it's been a lifelong positive addiction. And I want to tell all of your listeners, if you've got kids, encourage them to do this. Start them when they're young and make it a positive addiction because Benjamin Franklin said it's better to maintain health than to regain health. I wanted to mention that to you because it's an important background for all of what were you what, what did you going to hear about my life and my connections to all. My aunt took me under her wing, and she decided to put me on the stage. She knew I loved radio. She knew what I was doing. So she put me on the stage when I was nine years old and taught me how to memorize scripts. So the first show I was in was 30 pages long, and I memorized all 30 pages, not only my lines, but the lines of everybody else. And I was in this show, and then I went around. and was in other shows, and some talent agents from Hollywood saw, knew my aunt, saw me, and said, we want to take him to Hollywood. This kid's terrific. We wanted to, And Mom said to my aunt and her sister, I need him. He can't go. He's the only, you know, he, I need him. He's got to be here. Mm-hmm. I was disappointed. I really was. Because I wanted to go to Hollywood because that's where Walt Disney was. That's where Bob Hope was. That's where Charles Fuller was. That's where all my heroes were. You know, Roddy Reagan, John Wayne, so forth and so on. So I was on the stage for a couple of years doing shows. And it was fun because it taught me how to memorize lots of texts and uh, help my, you know, help me remember things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every once in a while, now at my age, I have a senior moment and say to my wife, "Where are the car keys?" But anyway, of course. <laughs> uh, my aunt also taught me at age nine how to type. We're talking nineteen thirty-nine. Yeah. So by the time nineteen forty rose around, I know how to type. Okay? So I was a lousy handwriter anyway. (laughs) Uh So, starting in grammar school and then junior high school and high school, I typed all my homework. Nobody else did. I, all my homework, I would t- go up to my aunt's house and type it, and she would say, okay, you got to correct this or correct that, and I would type it up and make sure it was clean. We had a little eraser thing on the ribbon, because it was all type, type.
1: I remember those, yeah. Yeah,
3: and I would hand it, and I became an honor student in junior high school. I became an honor student in, in uh, high school, Roxbury Memorial High School. I went to Theodore Roosevelt Junior High School in Jamaica Plain and, and Roxbury Memorial High School, and... Um, In uh, Roxbury, Roxbury Memorial High School, big boys' school. And I was such a good writer that I became one of the editors in their quarterly magazine. And I went around and I interviewed uh, uh, Jim Britt, who was doing the uh, uh, Red Sox baseball games. Um, I interviewed uh, Sherm Fella, who was a big star on CBS Radio and WEEI in Boston. And he knew what I was doing. And when I went up to interview him, he had me interview him on the radio. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You know. So I wrote his, Sharon Fella. I interviewed uh, a fellow who graduated from our school who was the guitarist for Nat King Cole. And I have to tell you this story because Nat, gonna, Nat King Cole is going to come up in my life a little bit later. You know? okay. So I meet Nat Cole when I'm a kid in Boston writing for this magazine. Junior achievement comes, and they do a test and say, you're an natural, you don't know, go to the Boston Globe and become a reporter, become a journalist, you know? So I went, the Boston Globe, a, put, had a fun page story with me, made a picture of the paper, how rocks were, da 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 da, da And I, I always wanted to be on the radio, because I love the radio. Remember I told you I love the radio? Right, yeah. And there was a radio club meeting across town at a brand-new ABC affiliate, WCOP, in Boston. And it was the most modern broadcast. It was like the big studios at Hollywood Studios, most of the state-of-the-art uh, ABC station in Boston. It covered all of New England. And I went over there and I went in and I... Because I wanted to actually be on the radio. I wanted to be, you know, like Arthur Godfrey and talk on the radio and all that. Uh And uh, when I went there, they said, well, we're not on. We don't have a show. And the general manager said, well, we've been meeting for three years and we've been unable to come up with a show. And why did you leave the Globe? And I said, because I want to be on the radio. And can I come back and see you in a week? Because I have some ideas. So they said... Because I wasn't supposed to, and they said, sure, you can come back. I came back later with a script and a format. And I stood up and I presented it. And the general manager said, kids, we got a show. We're going to go on the air. I called the show Teen Routine. And it was a variety show where we would interview uh, teens, uh, guests. We'd have kids who were performers like Barbie Morse. Who went on to succeed, and how to succeed in show business on Broadway? He was one of the kids. Who came on our show. He was my age, at the time, fifteen years old. So we went on that. We were on that station for three years. And I, and when we first started, they said, "From now on, you have to do everything." Because they taught me uh, how to. They taught me production things. I, I was there during the week. They mentored me, and they said. Kids have to do the show. We can, we taught you now, Joe, but you, the, this has to be a show of formed by kids. We've got nothing to do with you. you got the facilities. You know how it works. You can come here. And I used to go on the way in high school on the way to work at the Y in the evening. I used to stop at the radio station and stop prepping up for the week, going to the Y services, talking about the program director, about any celebrities and how we can get on a show. Because I had have that this script written by the end of the week. And I didn't have a typewriter at home. Well, I had to go to my aunt for that, but if I went to the radio st- station, I had a typewriter just for me, and I could start typing the scripts,
0: mm-hmm. and they'd be
3: ready, and they would get it ready for duplication for the, for the guys on Saturday. Jordan Marsh, Fili- first year we're on there, sponsored us. Filene's Basement sponsored us the second year, and Rexall Drugs the third year. We had a live studio audience, it was packed, three hundred people, and we were the number one live kid show in the city for the three years called Team Noon at High Noon in Boston. My favorite cartoon characters as a kid growing up was the Abner and Daisy May and Mammy and Yocum, and Mary and Sam and all these great characters. I love little dog patch USA. It went on to become a movie and a big show. Turns out that Al Caps art studios, right across the street from the radio station, and he has our station on all the time. He hears about the show, we hear about him, and he becomes a semi-regular. He's out almost every other week He comes on, and he's fabulous! <laughs> but Bob Hope comes by, uh, Sherry with Lamb Chop, that little thing, right. came by with her puppet. Uh, Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney came by, uh, famous movie stars, Arthur Treacher, others came by, and the young Bobby Morse came by and did his imitation of Cab Calloway's Minnie the Moocher, and it was great. He just <laughs> made it a Mooch, you know, because Cab was part of the great Apollo Theater group of, uh, you know, including Jim Bassett and Lionel Hampton all in, in Apollo Theater, but he had that thing down. At the end of the third year, the uh, we submitted our, station, our our team routine to the... Junior Achievement in New York because they were having a national contest for all the radio shows. They were going to have a national one for the best kids radio show with Junior Achievement. It was all over the country, hundreds of them all over. Mm-hmm. We did a transcription, we took a lot of photos, and we sent them in this package. And this was our the third year of our broadcast we did this. And uh, the general manager got a letter from the committee saying, we've disqualified your entry and they wrote this letter because no kids this show is too slick it's too professional kids could not have possibly written and produced this show so you're disqualified he was furious I'm sure he called them uh, he, sh- he sent him a picture with the governor of Massachusetts giving me an award it's in that book you've got a mm-hmm. picture of me with the governor of Brantford giving me an award for Junior for Teen Routine okay uh-huh. and they quit Junior Achievement at that time they quit it and they said this is outrageous and that was the end of the show. Before I go any further, years later, I'm talking the 1990s, I decided to call. I wonder if this guy was still alive, and he was. He was well along. He was like 90 in his eye. I found out I called him, and he said, Joe, I have never forgotten you. What happened to you? And I went out and told him. I said, well... I was on the radio in uh, Illinois, and I was uh, disc jockey on radio in Los Angeles. I founded a radio station. I was general manager of NBC station in Palm Springs. And he said, "We used to say that kid's got." He said, "You were just something." And I said, "Well, thanks for for for." Uh, I never forgot you and your encouragement, and I never forgot when he gave us up. You know what I was doing all this? I never thought anything of it. I just it was the thing to do. I wasn't thinking, "Well, I'm special or anything." I, I, it was hard work. Mm-hmm. Hard work, and I had to go over and more. And I always tried to make the shows better every week. And I learned out later at the Disney Studios, well, well, it's hard work. Everybody thinks it was not easy. easy. So anyway, after that, I was working at the Y, and I decided on my weekend Saturdays, which I volunteered. I saw a lot of kids coming doing nothing. I decided to start the Saturday Club, and I write that about in my book, mm-hmm. Wall Dreamers, Me. I started with five kids. Now I'm now through with the radio show, so I'm going to do Saturdays with these kids because I work at night every night at the Y. That's where I earn money to give to my mother to help her. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I take the bus and the train and everything in the city going and coming and home. So I'm a busy kid. My mom really saw me when I was growing up as a kid. While I'm on the radio in Los Angeles, I joined Park Street Church in Boston. And uh, Harold Ockengay is one of the most brilliant pastors in American history. Harry Truman had him head of a commission to go to Europe after World War II. He was part of a commission uh, by the War Department to see how they could restore hospitals and schools and education and churches in Europe. So he was part of that commission. That's the kind of person, Dr. Ockengay, that's the kind of quality he had, by the way, eight earned degrees. Okay, wow. from leading universities. He had degrees in philosophy, economics, psychology. The guy was brilliant. He was pastor of Park Street Church, a historic Park Street Church in downtown Boston, starting in the thirties. And before I was even a kid, because I didn't join the church till the forties. Okay, I'm a teenager now. Okay. And I recall he was warning the congregation back in the thirties about the government getting involved in education saying if you get the government and John Dewey philosophy, it's, they're going to begin to use the schools to do ideological uh, you know, as we would call today brainwashing but he was very eloquent the way he talked about it, uh, and he was absolutely right because in the history of our country, all schools were church related to begin with, There weren't that little school, however they, were, they were all related. the church the Harvard, Yale, all these were begun by church people, you right. know, John Harvard Was a minister, Harvard was started to train ministers So most churches, most schools Were independent, local schools And, they were, you know, public school They were public, open to the public, even though church people Might have started, but Harold Lucky Was a very brilliant man, and He heard it was, he read about me in the paper heard it was on the radio and said, would you like to help me Do something? And he said, sure, because I'm going to church every Sunday. I leave my house and go in. And He said, I need, would you become my radio recording engineer? Because I said, sure. And he said, I have this new recording device that I'd like you to record all my, every time I speak, I'd like you to record my Sunday morning and Sunday evening and midweek. I said, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Sunday morning, he gave a biblical exegesis. It was a Sunday, and every Sunday evening, he gave a topical message. Now, most ministers could never do this. We're talking topical current events. Uh Because Ockengay felt his congregation should be informed about what's going on Mm -hmm. in Boston, in the world. So we spoke about communism. He spoke about the rise of this anti-Christian approach to life, this worldview of nihilism from Hegel and so forth and Nietzsche. Uh, Harold Ockengay's deacons in that church were from the who's who of Boston Intelligentia, from Harvard, the head of the faculty, from MIT, the chairman of the, you know. He had 39, 36 deacons and they were all highly educated people. So Harold Arkengay could read the Bible in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew like you read USA Today. Wow. He would spend all week long preparing these two messages. He, and, uh, he had a library in his in the church of historic Park Street Church. that people of if you've never heard about Park Street Church, it's where the first abolitionist by John abolitionist speech against slavery, John Leaf Whittier was was in that church. Uh, My Country Tears of Thee was first sung in that church. And in the War of 1812, the ammunitions of America were in the basement of that church and they called it Brimstone Corner not because of the preaching, but because of all of the ammunition. But Park Street Church was the first church in America to send missionaries to Hawaii. Hmm. And they did great stuff. They started schools. They started clinics. King Kamehameha loved these original missionaries from Boston, from Park Street Church, and gave them land to help. He just thought, because they taught his children the Hawaiian language, because they wanted to translate the New Testament into the language, the native language, and they protected the culture. They liked the whole culture that they had, and when people were trying to get rid of it, it was the missionaries that kept it. And when the when the whalers would come in to Lahaina and grab the kids and take them off of drunk, the missionaries fought them and stopped them on it. So you can't pull these children off there. They're little kids, you know. But they were basically honest, hardworking people who brought literacy and medicine and education to Hawaii. Harold Hawking would spend Fridays dictating. On, Sunday, on Friday morning, his Sunday morning, he would dictate it to a secretary. And he had a big glass office where you could... see he, he, he never met with a woman alone. He had even counseling. He had a special office that was right... You could... Glass on all So Friday morning, he would dictate. The gal back then was a stenographer, and she would write down the, everything from Sunday morning. Then he was going to preach on Sunday morning. After lunch, he would spend... The afternoon dictating the Sunday the, the Sunday evening pro thing. And he did that for years mm-hmm. until this machine came along. Now let me tell you how brilliant this man is. When Billy Graham P.S. came to speak at our church after L.A., he said to me, Harold Ockengay is the greatest preacher in America when I was escorting him around the church. And he was, and he was. Dr. Ockengay, if you... Would, to get the manuscript that the girls had typed up on Friday. And you got it in the radio booth on Sunday and you looked at the text. He had no teleprompter. He had no notes. He just had an open Bible. He looked directly into the car. Con- he engaged the congregation. If you had that script in front of you, he never missed a word.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah.
3: I never had anyone like him. Both messages. And he, by having me record he picked up a full day that he didn't have to spend and now because he was a pastor funerals weddings counseling and writing books mm-hmm. I, I bring up Harold locking again because they played a big he was had a like walt but he was right in my early part a powerful influence like charles fuller the radio preacher from california now charles fuller Charles Fuller was a contemporaneous. And these two people had a big influence on my life. He was a contemporary of, 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 of Walt Disney. And by the way, we'll get into Walt, but Walt was a strong Christian man. He grew up in a Christian family. His dad, Elias, built the church they went to. Walt was named after his pastor. Uh, Elias preached when the pastor was on vacation. He taught Sunday school. The kids went there, and that's the family. So in case you folks don't know it, Walt's faith and family played a big role in his life. I remember when, when Bob Thomas was doing his book on Walt, because, you know, Elias built the home in Chicago, he built the home of Marceline, he, he built the church they went to, he, I mean, the guy was a builder, and when when Bob said, when you were growing up with you, what did you want to be, Walt? He said, I wanted to be a builder. I mean, guess where he got that idea? From his dad, you know? guy. And, of course, that's hands-on work, you know, and, and Walt was a hands-on guy, trust me, hands-on guy, tough, tough, hands-on. So, he was a hands-on guy. Charles Fuller, was pioneering on radio when Walt was doing getting movies when radio first started in the 20s. Now let me give people listing a little back on uh, Charles Fuller because he's known for other things. But Charles Fuller was born in Los Angeles and he grew up in Riverside where his dad was a citrus rancher. And when Charles went to Pomona College, he majored in chemistry and he was in the citrus business and he helped found the Sunkiss Cooperators cooperation, you know, where growers all put their stuff together and somebody they market them. You know, they got the walnut growers up and they got the almond growers and they growers don't want to they, they just want them to grow but they don't want to market. So Charles Fuller helped found Sunkiss Cooperative, but then he became the marketing director. And he marketed California oranges around the world. Charles Fuller was the guy that took the lead. Now how successful was he? He had a home in Newport Beach. He had his ranch out there on Riverside. He had a home at Arrowhead. He had a home out of Palm Springs. I don't think Charles Fuller was doing too bad, okay? (laughs) Say not. No. And he had no, you know, his dad was very active in church and supported missionaries. And, of course, Charles, like Walt Disney, went to church every Sunday. And one Sunday he got challenged, you know. You know, it was just, you know, because Ben Franklin, jump ahead of Ben Franklin Ben Franklin often said, what brings, what brings people happiness? Money? Notoriety? Fame? Position? Influence? Possessions? No. Ben Franklin, we'll get back on this because this was what Walt believed. Ben Franklin said, How what makes people happy? Doing good for others. And when we talk about cast members in Disneyland on this show, they do good for others every day, and that's what makes them magic, and that's what makes them happy, and that's what makes Disneyland and Orlando, the happiest place in the world. Disneyland is a manifestation of Walt's core principal values that he believed in. So Charles Fuller is pioneering. Now, Charles Fuller is very much like Walt, perfectionist. See, Walt elevated everything he did. So we're going to get into Walt and what he did. But we, since we're talking about Harold Mark again, my personal life growing up as a kid in Boston, Walt Disney and movies, Harold Lockingay and Charles Fuller by radio, because they were both on radio and in person. And, of course, going to the YMCA, going to summer camp. My aunt, my mom, all played a role in my life. And uh, I was lucky. I grew up with four sisters, so I grew up, I had a different perspective on girls. Right. Girls were real people. They had dreams. They weren't body parts. They were real people. And I learned at school, don't treat other people as a means to other ends. Treat them as ends of themselves from Christ. And I... That's true. I don't, you know, So I had a whole different perspective on girls, so I had good, healthy... and a matter of fact, I did very little dating in high school because I was so busy, and I did very little dating, in, if any, in college because I was so busy. So anyway, Charles Fuller's pioneering out here. He goes on one radio station in Oregon. But what he does, he... he, he he quits the sun kiss he has a lot of money he's got an uh, oil company gives him, they want to drill on his property and give him 10 grand so he says to his wife this will support him. I'm going to go to seminary he went to seminary went to Biola at the time mm-hmm. and then he became a pastor at Placentia and he went on the radio when it first started it was pioneering you know I'll just go to try radio and he got all kinds of letters and response so we decided hey radio is." so he worked on radio and experimented with radio and by 1935 he had started in 24. He had pulled together an amazing group of talented people, Dr. Leland Green, Ph.D. from USC in musicology, director of music for the Pasadena School System, and very much like Walt, a perfectionist. And uh, he pulled them together as a music director, and he had, well, uh, Leland put together a chorus choir and put together a quartet, much, you know, like the... A quartet that sounds like the Dapper Dance, you know, Barbershop Quartet, like the Close Harmony Quartet. And one of the original members of that quartet was a very per- famous person. He's very famous in all Disney parts. His name is Thoreau Ravenscroft. Thoreau Ravenscroft was a, one of the original basses in Charles Fuller's Quartet. And Thoreau told me one day, he said, Joe, everybody knows me for Disney... But the thrill of my life was singing for Charles Fuller to millions of people around the world. Now, we're jumping ahead of the story when we say that. Charles Fuller starts here. He starts on the local Orange County. Then he gets on KNX. Then he gets on KHJ. KHJ is the keystone of what becomes the Don Lee Network here in California. The Don Lee Network expands nationally and becomes the Mutual Radio Network. So he begins and he grows with this. Now, The amazing story of Charles Fuller is going to be told in a book coming out soon by Professor Phil Goff, uh, head of the Center for Culture of Indiana Purdue University, who's been working on a book on the life of Charles Fuller for the last 15 years. It's called by radio every Sunday, and he, uh, he and I, he interviewed me 15 years ago because I was a man whose life was changed by listening to Fuller, and I ended up going to Fuller Seminary. I never thought I would do that, and uh, I was one of the. And he, he and I have talked frequently, and he said, "You know, Joe, I'm reading, I'm meeting the moments of the Gospel Broadcasting Association. Remember." Charles Fuller was first a businessman before he got into the radio ministry. He knew how the world worked in the citrus business. Okay, He knew his father was in the mining business and retail business. So Fuller was a businessman. He knew how he knew how things worked. So he said, Joe, I'm so glad I'm doing this work because if every religious broadcaster, or actually any broadcaster, were only like Fuller, there'd never be a scandal. He was the first radio Christian evangelist And he did it right. He had a board of directors, 28 people, lawyers, housewives, pastors, a board of directors. They had quarterly meetings. He had Price Waterhouse do the financials. Everything was transparent, unlike, you know, we hear about transparency from people, and yet now the news is breaking today about they didn't have any, These a lot of these politicians didn't have transparency. They lied to us. Above all, Charles Fuller, like Bill Graham, and like Harold Gay, and like Walt Disney, and like Ben, was honest before his dad left randy he left three four hundred thousand dollars and he said invest this money and you know spread the gospel and do humanity there do things to spread christ's word and humanitarian things and charles said he would so charles fuller is experimenting on radio by 1835 he's broadcasting from the long beach municipal auditorium on prime time on the mutual radio network with a chorus choir made up of some of the finest faces in Hollywood and a quartet that even Jack Betty said, I wish I had that quartet. He had a classically trained pianist, Rudy Atwood, at the keyboard, and George Broadbent, who played the organ. All that music was carefully arranged by uh, Dr. Green. He took the hymns of the church, and he arranged it for broadcasting. This is a Walt Disney thing. Walt took the, the grim fairy tales of... You know, Snow White and Cinderella, and, and he elevated them. He took them to New Heights. Well, that's what Fuller's music director did. Charles Fuller's program called the Old Fashioned Revival Hour, and you can go on, you can Google it online and hear some of it, was prime time on the Mutual Radio Network, and every Sunday, above Jack Benny and above Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, the Old Fashioned Revival Hour was number one in the ratings. More than 20 million people listened to Charles Fuller. Wow. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. And Charles Fuller was not only a mutual, but he, when transcriptions came out, he was the first broadcaster to take the big L33 to third. And he decided, you know, we can do more than this network, we can expand to the world. Let's use transcriptions. We'll do it delay. So by the time the war came, he was on 2,000 stations around the world, including the military. And just that, that, I'll get into how he was the electronic, first electronic chaplain in American history. So Charles Fuller originates this program from Long Beach in front of an audience of five to 8,000. My good old buddy Bob Hope's doing his show, and Jack, in front of 300 people at Hollywood. And the, the place is packed. Now, you understand, there's no freeways to Long Beach. People have to drive all the way to get there. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kenneth Hahn... Uh, One of the Board of Supervisors of Los Angeles for many years, the Hahn family, and a very close friend of Walt. And I'm going to tell you about Walt and Kenneth Hahn later in this program with Randy. But Kenneth Hahn and his family would go down to Long Beach after church for the global broadcast of the Old Fashioned revival hour, And in my book, there's a photograph of Kenny Hahn, Billy Graham, uh, uh, handing Dr. Uh, Charles Fuller an award from the County of Los Angeles. At that time, I think it was for 35 years of broadcasting. Charles Fuller was on the radio for more than 40 years. And if you're listening to this program with Randy today, let me tell you something. Charles Fuller was on national radio and global radio on Mutual did ABC. And Charles Fuller had an hour primetime broadcast. Half the program was music. And that he was, see, he was like Walt. I'm going to get an audience if I have joyful, happy, upbeat music. A gal, a Harvard scholar, wrote a book on radio. Randy called redeeming the radio, and she and it was about radio broadcasters, Christian broadcasters in the thirties, come using the radio. So I called her and I said, I read your book. What do you think of Charles Fuller? She said, Joe, uh, he was so different. He was so a uh, so. Uh, when I went to the seminary, they opened up everything. When I went to the uh, gospel broadcasting, they opened up all of it. I had access to everything. The man was just amazing. First class, honestly, obviously honest, and so forth and so on. Paul Harvey uh, did a did a DVD on, on um, Charles Fuller after Charles Fuller passed away, and it's such a great tribute to Charles Fuller by Paul Harvey, talking about this warm voice and this wonderful music that for decades... Warm the hearts of millions of people all around the globe. And you if you're listening very careful, Charles Fuller never, ever asked for money. Not once. Never. In a one-hour broadcast, Charles Fuller's wife would read letters from uh, farmers and servicemen and all over the world, and at the end of her read letter, he would say, our mailing address is Charles E. Fuller, Post Office Box 123, Los Angeles. He had to hire 28 people who did nothing but open mail all week long. Wow. Uh, Phil Goff, who's writing this book, said, Joe, if, Alv- if they he said, if Albert, if anybody would like, there would never be a scandal because he was the first one and he did it right. I, I hope this, this point is getting across because where truth and honesty are wanting, everything is wanting. Folks, if you're listening to this program and you're dealing or hearing from dishonest politicians or dishonest salesmen or dishonest spot, whatever, everything's wanting. And we're going to get into more of that because Ben Franklin's uh, had a profound influence on Walt because Walt was a big fan of, of Ben Franklin and Ben Franklin's principles of happiness. Charles Fuller had a big influence on my life, and that's why I had to talk about him. And he and Harold Lock Gray were very close friends, and they founded Fuller Seminary in Pasadena in 1947. I'm a kid in Boston, 17 years old. The, the seminary was named after his father, Henry, because... No, not his father. I think it was his uncle, uh, a businessman. And uh, it's not named after Charles Fuller. He took his father's money and turned it into billions, but never used it for the seminary. Charles would raise the money for the seminary himself. Uh he took the money from that, and by the way, this is going to be in, uh, going to, this is going to be and I think this is going to be in phils book i 'm sure it 's going to be Charles never talked about what he did with this, the money he, that he invested for his father, but he invested in real estate and oil walls at stocks, he turned it into millions and millions of dollars. And he helped uh, the Navigators, he helped Campus Crusade for Christ, he helped Billy Graham get started, he helped uh, scores of, you know, people, missionary organizations that are building schools and hospitals, and you never heard about it. And by the way, of more than 40 years on the radio, and the reason I'm glad to share this with you is because Charles Fuller never talked about himself. Never. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about him. Until Phil Goff was writing this book, I knew I went to the. I knew nothing about him because Charles Fuller, for uh, forty years, lifted up Christ. He he honored God, and when he did good, he did it quietly, so nobody ever knew. Because like Ben Franklin, he knew that when you do good, just doing it gives you happiness. Mm-hmm. You don't need a a, a plaque at the. Oscars, you don't need to go on a big TV show and get a pat in the back. Just doing good for others brings you happiness, and that's all I want. You reward you, won. that's all I want. But Charles Fuller, like Walt and Harold Argate, made a difference in our world, and there's no end to the good that they have done. Fuller Seminary was started in 1947. I never, that never thought I was going to go to seminary. I must, I'll have to tell you this today. Fuller Seminary is the most respected and most influential seminary on the planet. Fuller Seminary has revolutionized religion around the world by making it more inclusive than exclusive. Fuller Seminary is located in the heart of Pasadena, two blocks from Colorado Boulevard where they have the Rose Parade and two blocks from the Civic Center. And as Charles Fuller said, that's where Christ would be if he was here, where people live, not behind some gated thing up on a hill somewhere. Fuller Seminary, unlike you know, most seminaries have five or 600 men or denominational, like the Southern Baptist, maybe 1,000 Fuller Seminary has more than 5,000 students there every from around the world. And the reason Fuller Seminary is so amazingly, in fact, is not only because of Charles Fuller, but because of Harold Ockengay. Harold Ockengay brought in Harvard, uh, I mean, some of the greatest scholarly minds to be the faculty. Dr. Edward Cardell, Dr. Carl F. Henry, famous men, uh, graduates of Harvard and top flight man, and I happen to know both of them. They were both teachers of mine when I was at Fuller, authors of books, profound intellects. But the guiding principles of Fuller Seminary start with, number one, we don't academically condition our students. When you go to Fuller Seminary, you're exposed to everything. That's because Harold Ockley and Charles Fuller agreed, when you're in the real world, you're going to hear about Hegel, you're going to hear about agnosticism, you're going to hear about all, you know, whatever it is, Buddhism, Hinduism, Nihilism, uh, Spinoza. you got to hear about everything. Atheism, you're going to hear about that. So at Fuller Seminary, all those things were presented, and they were presented objectively. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Carnell did a whole course on atheism, and when he did that course, he became an atheist. He was amazing. Wow. He was amazing. Fuller wanted kids to understand the real world. So at Fuller Seminary, the guiding principle is we expose our kids to everything and let them decide, let them go on this journey and discover let them read, the, let them make up their own mind okay, mm-hmm. the second thing the seminary taught is be respectful not tolerant, but respectful of people with different worldviews and different lifestyles you know, today's world you know if you don't tolerate my lifestyle I'll yell at you and scream at you because I won't tolerate your lifestyle you see it happening in our culture today you know uh, Fuller's idea was based on the words of Christ. You know, if you have, if, if, if you have enemies, people that don't be like them. Be better than them. Kill them with, I call it, kill them with kindness. <laughs> and I found out it works. And Walt found out it worked too. And I'll tell you a great story about that. Let's jump over to Walt. Now, we'll get back into Walt. But Walt, and i will get back into his history a bit. Talking about Walt applying his belief, this is a perfect place to talk about it. <clears throat> Walt is, when he comes out here and starts the studio, he's got a series called Alistair.
1: That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Joe Cosgrove for being my guest, and to you for listening. As you heard, this is definitely a different kind of interview, but I don't think that's bad. And as you could hear at the end of this part, we're heading straight into talking about Walt Disney at the beginning of Part 2. Hopefully, you learned some interesting things, and some useful things in what we talked about so far in Part 1, also. Now, if you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book like Joe did, or you've created a website or you're blogging, writing, performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you and why Disney matters to you, then I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who have worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic or had any special Disney experience you want to share, then I would love to hear from you too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. As a reminder, for a limited time, I'm selling my books in paperback and autographed at a discount. Check out storiesofthemagic.com slash christmas14 or click the link in the show notes for details or to order. You only have a couple of days left to order if you want it before Christmas. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, including one to Joe's book, Walt Dreamer's Me, that's going to be in the show notes for the episodes that have his interview, including this one, of course. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Before we wrap this episode up, this is going to be the last one that comes out before Christmas, and it's actually coming out on uh, one of the nights of Hanukkah, so let me wish everybody a happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever it is that you may celebrate. I hope that you enjoy it and that it's just a wonderful time being with friends, family, and uh, having a chance to celebrate. Now, thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share
0: a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at Or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode, and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.